0: Hey podcast listeners, we had so much great conversation and so much to pack into this urban birding episode that we split it into two parts. Thanks for downloading part one, we hope you like it, and download part two.
1: For me, birds is a great way of connecting with people. For me, it's a great way of sharing, I know it sounds corny, but sharing love.
0: Uh, This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with... Tony
2: Crosdale And... Keith Russell.
0: We're going to talk about some birding around the world topics. So we've got interviews with David Lindo, the urban birder out of England. We have shorter discussions with a couple other birders from elsewhere around the world. Mike Liu out of Manila in the Philippines, talking about the Wild Bird Club of the Philippines. And Dr. Joseph Onoja from... Lagos in Nigeria talking about the Lecky Bird Club there and their birding challenge. Let's do a quick introduction with Keith. Keith, who are you?
2: (laughs) My name is Keith Russell, and I am a member of the staff of the National Audubon Society. I work for the um, Pennsylvania State Program of National Audubon, which is called Audubon Pennsylvania, and I'm one of three staff that work uh, for Audubon Pennsylvania in the city of Philadelphia. I've been working for Audubon, Pennsylvania, about 10 years. Could you briefly explain to people
3: how there is National Audubon, and there's and they have state chapters, but there's also separate Audubons? I think a lot of people don't realize that. that, that you know There's a lot of things with the name Audubon that aren't necessarily the same Yeah, Tony,
2: that's a very good thing to bring up because it is confusing. The National Audubon Society has been around since 1900, but since that time, there have been other Audubon groups that have come up that are independent of National Audubon, but they still have Audubon as part of their name. For example, New Jersey Audubon and Massachusetts Audubon are organizations that you know, work on bird issues in those respective states, but they are not part of the National Audubon Society. So very quickly, the state programs that are part of National Audubon have Audubon as the first name, Audubon Pennsylvania is part of National Audubon, but if the state name is first, like New Jersey or Audubon or Massachusetts Audubon, then that's a separate organization. Yeah. Um, we do work together, and obviously we have overlap in the things that we're working on all the time, but as far as you know, them being part of National Audubon Society, they're officially not part of the
1: National Audubon Society. Okay, and to be honest, yeah. in a way, for birds, Philly,
3: <laughs> with, when it comes to like the Parks and Rec angle, I'm, I'm almost reluctant to have Audubon involved. The perception would be that Parks and Rec just opened the gate in the morning, and then someone from Audubon led the walk. They wouldn't, real, people would, would, wouldn't realize our own expertise was involved because Audubon has such basically, it, the perception. I think in the public, if you're advocating for birds, birds equals you, Audubon, e- equals yeah. Audubon, yeah. which is great for Audubon. There's a lot of power involved in that. But I mean, it's jokingly frustrating for people who,
2: you know. Well, I appreciate your sharing your uh, observations <laughs> about that with me. So I will certainly be trying to be sensitive to the <laughs> issue.
1: Come on, gloat about deport. it.
2: <laughs> it's more the of like a
1: twist. it's more of
3: like a joke, <laughs> it, 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 but it, it's true. It does come up if you're if you're Robin Burns. You always hear Audubon, Audubon, Audubon. And you know what? To I mean, Audubon's done such great stuff. They deserve to have that yeah, reputation out wanna,
0: there. So in a minute, let's segue into talking about some of the stuff we're doing in Philadelphia. But first, um, how did you get involved as a Audubon um, outreach? Well, what's your title? I'm sorry.
2: Um, my, my title right now is Program Manager for Urban Conservation. How
0: would you get involved as a Program Manager for Urban Conservation?
2: Well, I started working with Audubon actually um, in 2003. I worked for the National Audubon Science Office. Which is, Audubon has got all these different layers of, um, anyway, you know, on our, on our organiza- organizational chart. But this is um, part of um, National Audubon. They have several national offices. There's a policy office, you know, there's uh, a science office and so on. And the science office now is sort of split between the East Coast and um, Washington And so, originally, it was all located here in Pennsylvania, uh, up near Warminster, so I started working with them, working on the um, important bird area program. Okay. So, um, that's a national program, and I was involved with, you know, figuring out a lot of stuff that was going on with that program, uh, nationally and locally, but um, around 2005, there was a focus that needed to be paid uh, to Pennsylvania, and specifically to what was going on in Philadelphia. So I started working on um, nominating Fairmount Park as an important bird area because it had not become an important bird area yet. And so um, after that nomination got approved, I then uh, was, uh, I switched to working for Audubon, Pennsylvania, the state program. And uh, we have about, I don't know how many employees we have. I think it's between 15 and 20 employees around the state. I should know that. but. Um, It varies from time to time. And um, most of us are located in southeastern Pennsylvania. And, again, there are now three Audubon employees working in Philadelphia. Um, I've been working the longest. And during that time, um, it's a great job because you sort of have to figure out what types of things are important for us to do and how to address them in the city. But my focus really has been on um, the Fairmount Park IBA and just figuring out a number of things that need to be done to address issues that birds deal with, particularly in Philadelphia, and those tend to be urban issues. Um, They tend to be things associated with human structures like birds and glass, uh, birds and lights, um, birds and uh, non-native plants that people plant, and so on. So um, my focus since I've been in Philadelphia has been on these issues, and so the 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 titles I've had have changed over Uh, the years.
0: I'll pick one of those out just because I know more about it. Um, The building collision issue, because you did a a study on
2: that. We did. Yeah, Yeah. Audubon um, has been working uh, in very close collaboration with the Philadelphia Zoo's Conservation Department since 2006 on that particular issue and also with the Academy of Natural Sciences. And um, We have you know had so few staff that it's been um difficult for us to do certain things because we just didn't have the capacity so most of what we have been working on in Philly over the last ten years has been done in collaboration with other organizations including fairmount Park. We've done a lot of work with the park uh, but this particular and the park has helped us on this particular study, but uh the zoo came to Audubon in two thousand and six and wanted to um They wanted us to collaborate with them in starting a Lights Out program in Philadelphia. And Lights Out programs exist uh, around the country in various cities. It's a way of getting building owners to turn out lights during migration because lights can confuse birds and contribute to birds flying into buildings and getting killed that way. So we agreed to work with them on that because we were interested in that that, uh, particular issue. But in the long run, what was needed for us to raise awareness um, about this issue and get people to actually participate was local data. We went to the Philadelphia Building Owners and Managers Association in 2006 um, to try to get them to participate in the light cell program, and they said, well we'd be more interested if you had some data from our own buildings and from Philadelphia. We had anecdotal data, but we didn't have a whole lot of specifics. So we did um, wind up uh, going back to the drawing board and we did a study in downtown Philly from 2008 to 2011. Uh, So it was spring and fall, spring and fall for three years. We went out and monitored uh, an area about three and a half square blocks for dead and injured birds Uh, every day during the spring migration and the fall migration and um, We got a lot of great data. It was a really intensive study We would be out monitoring every day at 530 in the morning and we stay out until 8 So (laughs) it was a lot of early days Um, But we found a lot of birds and we um, got a lot of great information about how collisions occur so basically from that study Um, we made estimates about how many birds were actually colliding with buildings in that area that we looked at. We got some comparative information from other areas downtown, and we're now taking that information that we got, and we're trying to move the dial by helping people who have buildings that bird collisions are happening at to actually do something to um, prevent those collisions from happening. So we've been working with some colleges, and uh, universities in Philadelphia, some private um, businesses and other organizations to actually put up film on surfaces that they uh, have on certain buildings where birds are colliding. And uh, the film has patterns on it that birds can see, and that prevents them from wanting to fly into those those glass surfaces because the pattern looks like something they can't fly through. Yeah. and. Uh, so that's that's one of, one of the big issues that we've been working on, and it's been a very exciting issue to work on because it's a really big problem um, in cities all over the world, and there are estimates that anywhere from 300 million to a billion birds are colliding with glass on buildings and other man-made structures yes. every year just in the United States. And from the data that we collected, we know that there are probably um, – thousands to tens of thousands of birds colliding with buildings just in Center City. So um, it's a huge problem. It involves probably as many as 100 species in Center City and uh, any everything from uh, wild turkeys to ruby-throated hummingbirds. And we had a wild turkey that flew into a um, restaurant on Broad Street, right near Temple University, of all places—it's <laughs> hard to believe—but um, I mean, all I kinds see, of birds are flying at the. I've seen around Barsham's
0: Gardens. I'm late to the club of realizing that wild turkeys fly. Um, they, yeah, they fly. I learned this a few years ago, but like I still don't think of them as—I think of them as flying from like short, like short distances from up in the tree where they roost, back down to the ground, getting away from something for a little right. while, but not like flying across the city. Well,
2: I wouldn't have imagined that a wild turkey would be found dead in front of a building on broad, North Broad Street right near Temple University. Yeah. Another one flew into a building at the University of Pennsylvania, which is closer to Woodland Cemetery and yeah. stuff. But they get around, and um, you know, there's all kinds of, of species that are colliding with buildings in the heart of our city. One of the um, more unusual birds, too, that um, collided downtown was a yellow rail. A bird I personally have never seen in the wild. <laughs> um, uh, so it's a it pretty the elusive. The wrong way. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty elusive species. What Very hard to what find. There, there's. It's a small rail, marsh bird, and it's sort of a uh, tawny, yellowish, brownish plumage. It's only about five or six inches in length. Streaky. Uh, okay. They're really hard to see. I only saw one once because I was in such a excruciating
3: pain because the terrain was so terrible that I was looking down like because at the right time <laughs> yeah I wanted to scare
2: across that was lucky yeah yeah they're hard to find and they're, they're not common they're okay. really uh, common anyway it's it's a huge problem birds migrate and they have to go through cities to get to where they're going and a lot of birds will actually stop and land in the middle of cities looking for you know food and and shelter so, uh, we got a lot of information about birds colliding with buildings here, and now we're working with um, organizations throughout the city that have these problems trying to actually um, do something about them. Neat. Jose, Matt,
3: who is a, will probably the next episode or will be on, he, he's yep. been on before, my roommate Matt Halley at the Academy of Natural Sciences, he says that the vast majority of specimens, modern specimens, in the museum collection all come from window collisions.
0: Just people bringing them in. And saying, yeah, hey, I found this on the sidewalk. Yeah, and
3: a- one of them, he said recently he was going through, or I don't know if he skinned it and, and, and put it in, or just saw it recently. But he saw one, a specimen that I collected on your study. Okay. <laughs> yeah, when I was you know, volunteering for his for Keith's study, at, you know, going downtown. That was so strange. The emotions because you're still looking for birds in some respect. And so you like you kind of have this thing where you you you, you want to feel like you're doing a good job, f- so you want to collect things, but then you don't want to collect things because you like you want to because f- it means it's dead, yeah, yeah. You yeah. want to bring stuff in to feel like you're contributing to the study, but you're also like, well, everything
2: I bring in is is dead, so it was yeah. really weird. You're trying to find stuff, but you know that what you're finding is going to not be good. Yeah, and it's yeah. A, it's a really strange, yeah yo-yo of
3: emotions I did see uh, something cool though. I saw uh, just a head of a yellow boat cuckoo so I assumed that a peregrine got it
2: yeah there was a place in our st- in our study area um, where there was a really really tall building and peregrine falcons were posted on the top of that building all the time trying to find um, or catch migrating birds and that's where we found heads all the time because they would drop heads off the top of the building of birds that they had caught it's the Tomcast building right yeah, and that's where I found the head. yeah.
0: This actually resonates with one of the stories that, that we have on the podcast out of Manila. Um, not I mean, a little bit. Where, well, no, I'll say it resonates. Um, where you have a bird club where you have uh, birders engaging in advocacy, not just in getting out and seeing stuff. And so in that one, we have Mike Liu from the Wild Bird Club of the Philippines. I'll start off and say the, the club is relatively new. I think it's only from about within the last 20 years and they had started off well it has to be because they started off as an e-club as he put it um just about an online group of people who coordinated to go out and look for birds together and then they formalized into a group once they started doing advocacy because they needed to have an official organization to be able to have any kind of standing with the government and one of their early victories was preservation of uh in manila bay i guess there are islands in manila bay and one of them which was a mangrove marsh kind of habitat they ended up getting preserved because it was it was critical habitat for some rare birds. Um, I'm gonna ask Tony, who's our, who I think of as my friend with Asian birding experience. Um, he mentioned Philippine ducks and black-winged stilts. Ring any bells? Yeah. Okay. What do they look like?
3: Black-winged stilts look very much like our, but still. Uh, so stilt is a type of sandpiper, but they're sandpipers are usually you know, we think, most people think of sandpipers think of like a tan or a gray streaky bird. These are more boldly colored. They're, they're usually black. They're pied, you know, black and white and they and really, really, really long legs. Like, extremely, like, maybe the longest legs proportionate <coughs> proportion to their body. I f- think them and flamingos are tied for having the longest legs proportionate proportion to their body and the legs is to be pink or red and then their body's usually white with black wings and some black on the neck and the head. Uh, ours have actually black to go, like, Form a mask, but these okay. I think just the black comes up on the nape and then on the, on the wings. Very beautiful, and a really like a ice pick for a bill. Okay. And They're like medium. They're, they're they're not tiny, but they're not huge either.
0: And he was describing the Philippine duck um, as having is sounds like what I think of as basic duck. I mean, looking kind of. He was describing similarities between how it looks and like a, a how a mallard might look. Um, but he was saying that they have what people describe as kind of eyeliner. <laughs> I found you because I was reading about the Las Piñas, Paranaque, critical habitat, and ecotourism area. Yes. Um, so if you could describe um, what that place is.
4: Uh, one of the places that we looked for was a reclamation area. At that time, there were few buildings, and slowly the buildings were starting to come, and our bird-watching sites get, kept getting developed. So these yeah. are all cordoned off. Then we stumbled upon this last piece of mangrove island with mud floods And wow, and there were so many birds there. So we started recording. We listed down what we saw. And then one day, uh, we heard that it's going to be reclaimed again. So we, we got in touch with the with, uh, media, with some of the people in the Department of Environment and even with government agencies. One of the senators heard about it and and conducted the press conference so that's how we got into the media at that time and the department of environment used our 5 year database to declare it as a critical habitat because it's a it's the last mangrove with mad flat island in, in this part of manila and it's a migratory stopover point for a lot of bird species including some which including globally threatened Philippine duck, okay. and I think more than one percent of blackwing still. Okay, so that's how we, we got uh, decli- we were able to declare it as a critical habit uh, that it it fell into that category called critical habitat.
0: So if this is an area that's that's mud flats and mangroves, um, yes. How accessible is it?
4: Oh, because there were initial reclamation development already. There were the two islands were already joined together, and there was a short uh, highway that that uh, where you can drive straight to the island.
0: Okay, so in a
4: so you don't even have to wait or or, or uh, take a boat; you just drive drive your car straight to the island. We conduct guided birdwatching trips for the general public. Uh, so when when we have uh, birdwatchings. Uh, activities we we bring the people there I mean, I mean among other bird watching sites in metro Manila okay but there are schools which are specifically specifically asked to be taken there and it's not just schools sometimes there are bank employees, rotary clubs okay so slowly people are getting uh, are uh, new about the place and because of what we had on the media campaign, a lot of people know about that place
0: okay. And so, one of the, the things that, um, when I was reading about it, s- seemed interesting to me was the, the claim that there is a conflict with the airport.
4: There was a big company, one of the biggest companies in the Philippines, that wanted to do the reclamation. And this claim about the possibility of first airstrike only came out when uh, the reclamation issue came out. The airport has, was built in 1969. The islands, the birds have been there since way, way back before. <laughs> so how come no airstrikes have ever happened from 1969 until now? So one time they, they did a press uh, press conference at the airport and we insisted that we be taken around the, the runway to see what birds are there. We saw a lot of cattle egrets and they were pointing out, you see flocks and flocks of these cattle egrets here. And our response was the cattle egrets that, that you find on your runway are not found on this island because cattle egrets don't go to salt water. So it's different species that are found on the runway. We've talked about what the threats have
0: been. Is the area still planned for development or reclamation?
4: So far, I, I haven't heard of any plans in that area, but they are trying to develop other areas in Manila Bay, which we are also at gates. But at least for now the critical habitat is safe.
0: Okay. Great. What kind of birds do you see around where you live?
4: Oh oh no. <laughs> <laughs> you... I live in downtown Manila and if you've been to Manila, it's there are very few green areas. Uh, but surprisingly I see Swallows. I see night uh, night herons pass by during sunset. Uh, there are some bobbles and fantails. There was one time a, a friend was calling me to to look up because a flock of b- buzzards passed by his house. So I ran out to my the top of my building and I saw like part of that flock. So it was so. Surprising to see them in the pass by the city. So maybe if we look up more often, we'd see more birds.
0: (laughs) It sort of sounded to me. I mean, it was a little bit more contentious, maybe, where they're trying to stop development on this island. But the story about birders sneaking or or finding a way onto sort of no man's land to look for birds, and then that converting into some kind of preserved habitat or park. Um, made me think of the East Park Reservoir stuff with the Audubon. I, I met you, I think, around 2008. There you go. looking at a picture of a Philippine duck. Um, and in 2008, you were talking about it as something that could happen soon. And then... <laughs> it's all
1: relative, isn't
0: it? <laughs> so go ahead. What's the story of the East Park Reservoir?
2: Well, Audubon has a number of um, educational centers around the country. Some of them are in pretty, you know, rural settings, and some of them are in pretty urban settings. And um, we don't have an Audubon Center here in Philadelphia, but we should have one fairly soon. Uh, We're going to be opening a center in North Philadelphia, in the Strawberry Mansion neighborhood, um, at a site called the East Park Reservoir. Uh, Within the next two years, um, we've actually been working on some of the early parts of the construction of the, of the site and fundraising is about 95% done. Ooh. So <laughs> it was done and then the costs of the project went up, so we had to actually continue fundraising. But we're going to have a center um, at the uh, East Park Reservoir that is operated by Audubon and the Outward Bound organization. So both of us will occupy... Um, this, the, the center, we'll both have staff there and we'll both have programming there. So we hope it will be a nice collaborative project where people can come from the neighborhood or from wherever and enjoy Outward Bound activities as well as activities that we have. And we'll have staff that are operating from that center that are going out into schools um, and we'll be doing programming throughout Philadelphia that will all be operating from that center.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to include also, I had recorded some audio when you led a walk there last year. Podcast listeners, on this recording of the bird walk that we took in December of 2015, led by Keith Russell to explore the East Park Reservoir, the site to be of the Discovery Center, you will also hear some other voices, notably of Robin Irisari and Matt Haley, uh, friends of the podcast and frequent guests and contributors. And my daughter Magnolia also chimes in.
1: basin. This is about 37 acres of water. So this is the basin that's still, still left. Um, we'll come all the way around this basin and uh, be able to see the basin that is still used by the water department for water storage. And the basin that's been abandoned that's now growing trees. So, um, let's we'll see what's out here. It looks like a bunch of galls. Probably Ringville Gulls, I see two Canada geese. We got somebody right there. I do agree about the where you, like you have yeah. five yeah. a little yeah. white cotton tail. Yeah. Swimming around there. Mallards in there. We didn't see them before. But they're swimming. Mallards. Flying. The wood ducks flying. And a bunch of um to the wood ducks. Going to the left, and a bunch of mallards, yeah. and um, nice view. I think there might be a redneck grebe out there, which is a pretty neat bird, it's a really hard bird to find, oh, um, it, it's got, it goes, and it was right beyond the mallards, yeah it's a pretty big grebe. You are the wood ducks swimming. So I don't see the grebe right now, but it was not a pie bill greave. It's pretty big. Have a merlin in the tree over there. that yeah, one more time, Robin. We might have a merlin in that tree over there. That right, is. So that looks like a merlin to me, and the size of it. It's kind of chunky and robust. I like my Merlin's, Merlin's like a I like my soup. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yes, the color of a Merlin and when it flew it had those I'm rings on the true. tail. Yeah, same tree. Yeah, if you look How about that to get both them in one tree. Is that a kestrel up the top? You see down More colourful than that. Yeah, they <laughs> cut, <laughs> the Yeah. red out of the cut. The lower bird looks like a merlin, doesn't it? Yeah. And you see the upper bird is smaller, and it does look like it has a different pattern on it. So, so it was guy. a kestrel and a merlin. It yeah. is. It's
0: a male kestrel.
1: Do You see it perched on the You're sitting on the, the, pipe right the pipe. That's not something you see often. Like kestrel no, and no, no. merlin Just side on. by side. No, there he is. You can really see the difference in structure of those birds. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah, this is a site that was created in the 1880s, and it was an engineering marvel then. It's 100 acres, and it's basically a place where the city stores treated drinking water. So water is disseminated from the reservoir out into people's homes or out into businesses throughout Center City and North Philadelphia. So originally there were three large basins there in the 1880s, and gradually over time the city's population shrunk, the number of businesses declined, and businesses use a lot of water. So, as the need for water declined, the need for using all three of those basins um, changed. So they gradually the city gradually used fewer and fewer of those basins. And by the 1990s, they were really only, the late 1990s, they were only using one basin. So uh, one of the other basins, the largest basins on the site is the West Basin. that had really been abandoned for a long time, and it had become, uh, basically, a wild lake. So, there are fish in it, there's aquatic plants, and there were a lot of birds. So, Audubon and Outward Bound will be utilizing that basin and the area around that basin while the rest of the site um, is still going to be used by Philadelphia Water for storing treated drinking water.
0: And my understanding is there's also a site I mean, it, that, that people have sort of been sneaking into to, 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 to look at birds over the years.
1: Well, I
2: wouldn't characterize it quite as sneaking in, but we, um, I got permission to go into the reservoir. I, I requested permission to go okay. into the reservoir during the 1980s, and I wanted to basically find out if there were birds using How that you, site.
0: What gave you the idea that there might be?
2: During the early part of the 20th century, people could go into the site um, unencumbered. It was yeah. open to the public. But by the late 1960s, early 1970s, gates were put up to protect people from going in and drowning and, drowning, and yeah. protect the city from the liability from that. So nobody was going in looking for birds in recent decades. Uh, I had a more romantic
0: but, idea that people were hopping the fence. and
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, are not supposed to, maybe they were. <laughs> but um, there were reports in the literature from the early part of the 20th century of all kinds of interesting waterfowl that had been seen there. So I was just interested in seeing if there were still birds there. So um, the water department very graciously allowed me to come in and look around. And then each year we were able to um, have someone come in and do a survey uh, of what waterfowl were there during January. And that information was um, helpful in attracting Audubon to the site uh, as a place to build the center.
0: Great. Um, and also about the site, I think it's worth highlighting that, that we have other nature centers around the city, the really prominent ones, whether I'll count Hines in there. I'd say definitely. Yeah. And then particu- but also where you work in the Wissahickon and um, the Northeast in Pennypack. Um, and Schuylkill Center. And the Schuylkill Center. True. That a lot of them are more middle class uh, or bordering middle class and sort of maybe but upper-class neighborhoods. Strawberry Mansion, though, is one of the, put bluntly, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the whole city. It's got very challenged educational outcomes for the kids there, it's got, it doesn't have great health outcomes for people who live there. And so I've been we're such a huge fan of the project because it's citing a, a, an, an environmental education center in a place that you don't think of them usually.
2: You can walk to the center from Strawberry Mansion. Yeah. And um, there are a tremendous number of people uh, that live right there in Strawberry Mansion. There are a number of schools. And so, yeah, it's positioned in the park, but it's positioned very, very close to the neighborhood so that hopefully people in the neighborhood will want to um, have access to the center and use the center. Yeah. So we're very, um, we very purposely wanted to have the center there so that it would be easily accessible to all the residents of Strawberry Mansion. And those are some of the people that we're most um, interested in having come to the center. We have, over the years that we've been working on this project, we've worked with residents of Strawberry Mansion on this project, and they've been very um, much involved in what we're doing and how we're doing it. So it's very much about them, as well as other people.
0: Hey, podcast listeners, we're going to wrap up the first part of this urban birding episode with an interview with Dr. Joseph Onoja of the Lekki Birding Club in Lagos,
5: Nigeria. All right, I'm Dr. Onoja Joseph Daniel, and I'm the Director of Technical Programs of the Nigerian Conservation Foundation in Lekki, Lagos, Nigeria. The Lekki Bird Club was started as a volunteer-based bird conservation group and this was established in March of 2009. And this is to raise the stake of bed conservation in Nigeria. So the Lucky Bed Club has its first uh, series of bed clubs, um, the first series of bed clubs in Nigeria that NSF wants to set up. And we hope to also set up these bed clubs in other um, communities, around, in other cities around Nigeria. And the activities of this uh, bed club is to go bed-watching trips, to organize talks and lectures, as well as publication in form of newsletters and trip reports to reach wider audience and uh, people who are also interested in bird conservation or, or who are nature enthusiasts. Who takes part? Like what kind of people end up birding with the bird club? Well, actually, it's open to everybody who is interested in going birding with us and people who love nature, people who love to be around Uh, nature, natural environment. So usually these beds we go to natural natural environment for us to be able to see them. So as we are there we also encourage people to look around and appreciate nature. So basically uh, nature enthusiasts are people who go out bedding with us. But it's open to a wide wide range of anybody who wants to come out. Yeah, so far we visit bed club I mean there are the areas that have been visited are reserves. You know, an urban place like Lagos lacks uh, um, some of these reserves. So we go to beaches where we can find um, coastal birds, seabirds. So we go to also um, some, some personal, uh, personal protected areas, people who set up their orchards. So we go in there to find birds. And also there are some monumental areas that are surrounded by lakes. So we go there also for some water birds. So basically, where those uh, activities are carried out, bird watching activities are uh, carried out uh, mostly areas where we, we where we think birds can be, and then we go there. We just look for we just look for birds. Since uh, Lagos is an urban uh, settlement, what do you mean by an
0: open settlement?
5: Yeah, an urban settlement is. i what I mean by urban settlement is the fact that. Lagos is, uh, is, is one of the largest growing cities in Africa. So you have very few places, green areas. You have very few places that are green areas. You have, everywhere is almost built up. So except places that are, were consciously reserved as green areas. If not every other place is a concrete jungle.
0: So what are some highlight species for you um, and for the
5: bird club? A very common species that, uh, that i seen around uh, lagos is the red eye dove it is uh, something that is very common around around lagos so you find that very often around um built up areas and then you find other other birds that are quite uh, they are not, they're, they're not uh, they you can find them as they fly around because of the swampy nature of Lagos. You know Lagos is a coastal town. Because of swampy nature you find water birds flying around. Sometimes you see uh white faced whistling ducks. They fly around. Yeah you sometimes also you see um common laughing doves common booboos sometimes you see western grey plantain eaters and sometimes you even see kingfishers, for instance, the woodland, the woodland kingfisher, woodland kingfisher. Okay, yeah, the, the bird watching challenge was, uh, was initiated by the Lekki Bird Club and the Nigerian Field Society. They invited interesting bird watchers with all uh, kind of experience, uh, with, uh, with the different level of experiences. And the purpose of the event was to promote bed watching awareness on the environment and the protection of uh, local habitat. And usually, the competition was be, began and ended in the Lecky uh, Conservation Centre along the Lecky Expressway. So, where they had a team of three to five members who can compete in full twelve hours, that is half day, and they won for shorter hours of six of uh, six, uh, I mean shorter time of six hours, and. Individuals that do not have a team will be paired with other groups who want them to participate with them. So the teams that spot that the most species of wild, free, living birds will be declared the winners. So in the way that is, that is, yeah, you, you stimulate people, you know, sometimes bird watching also has to do with a conscious effort. Sometimes you don't just walk, walk and the birds meet you. Sometimes you have to look around. You have to really consciously look around for you to be able to spot the birds. Because they are not. It's not all the birds that are as noisy as the one we call the common bubble. Common bubble is very noisy. If it's fetching some, it's on the tree, you always find it because it always calls. But others are quiet. So it it requires uh, somebody who is consciously looking out for them to be able to see them. So so what kind of counts?
0: Like how many uh, how many birds did
5: the team see? Yeah, the 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 teams that the teams that had the highest actually got actually got uh, like. 36 species on their list. Yeah, 36 species on their list within the time they had a the competition running.
0: Hey, podcast listeners. This ends part one of our urban birding episode. We hope you enjoyed it and download part two. Thank you.